For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Greetings, Bodhisattvas. So, I think Nicholas is going to introduce himself, but he's been a long time Bodhisattva practicing with us in many other places. So, welcome. Thank you. Hi. I think y'all know me, but I'm Nicholas, and um, I'd like to uh, start with a poem that I found by Bridget Lowry, and um, it really reminded me of uh, sitting in this very space, actually. Um, So, um, in the strange early morning half-light, we sit in the cloudiness of our questioning. We sit in our madness and our clarity. We sit in the midst of too much to do. We sit in the warm arms of our shared sorrow. We sit in community and in loneliness. We sit in sweet exhaustion. We sit in the blazing energy of being alive. We sit here with the singing cicada, here with each electric bird song, here with the rippling of breezes and the dry grasses, here with the cobwebs and the clouds and the dusty road upon us, us in sound and the sound in us, us in the world and the world in us. So um, tonight I'm gonna talk about how I came to practice and I might talk a little bit about dealing with um, pain in Zazen, as we said Zazen. Um, I grew up in Indiana. Uh, my family was, you know, fairly dysfunctional. There was, you know, a lot of alcohol around. My father could sometimes be violent. So I think at a very early age, on some level, I just knew that, you know, something's not quite right, and I was looking for some way to reduce my suffering from probably as an early teenager. Um, Also, I was gay. Uh, Gayness uh, wasn't really a thing then um, in the early 70s. I guess it was emerging. Um, But I didn't know anybody that was gay. I had never really heard of being gay. And and so I was pretty... uh, pretty sure that something was wrong with me, you know, uh, so I developed a lot of shame, a lot of fear, a lot of self-loathing, as the gays do, particularly in the Midwest, and particularly at that time. (laughs) Um, So I remember uh, I was a teenager, probably 16, 17, I came across a Arthur Janoff's The Primal Scream. Some of you older folks might remember that book. It was a huge book. And and I was thinking, uh, oh my God, the primal 
little screamer by just looking at that. Maybe I can maybe maybe I can scream my way into a sense of belonging. But um, you know, like where do you scream? You can't just <laughs> scream in your house. You know, the cops will be called, or you can't. You know, it's just it's a it's really hard if you really want to scream, like to think of where to do that. And so, I would drive around in my car screaming <laughs> my lungs. And it kind of worked. Uh, I did get some relief. So um, I ended up going to Ball State for a year. Um, and uh, I was reading a newspaper and I saw an ad for trans transcendental meditation. There was a picture of the Maharish. And, and um, that spoke to me because... Uh, uh, you know, it was big news. The Beatles learned uh, transcendental meditation from the Maharishi, and um, uh, got a lot of play in the press. And and uh, so I knew what it was. And I thought, oh God, that's what I want. Maybe that's maybe that'll do it. So I called up this little TM center, and it was about we were about ready for fall break, and they couldn't see me. So um, I said, I really want to do this. And they said, well. You're close to South Bend where you're going. Why don't you go there? So I called the center in South Bend and um, arranged a time to meet with them. And and they said, um, well, bring um, a piece of fruit and a check for $100. <laughs> and so um, I went and got my mantra. And I furiously started meditating. And... And I had some experiences. I had some very, you know, big sense of space and and uh, peace, and you know, I I definitely felt something. And I think this ex it kind of accelerated my spiritual karma in a way, um, uh, because I was interested in pursuing my spiritual path. But like, what what are you going to do in Indiana? Right? There's not much going on. So miraculously, six months later, I'm living in Manhattan and I'm sharing a one bedroom on 14th Street with four other people. <laughs> and it's 1979 and New York is a wreck, absolute wreck. And, but it was wonderful, wonderful wreck. And um, once again, I'm reading the newspaper, I'm reading the Village Voice and I see an ad for Rolfing. And right before I had, was getting ready to leave for New York, I, I was watching the Tom Snyder show, which was uh, a show that we, I think it was like the first late night guy that followed Johnny Carson. Anyway, he had a show about rolfing and they did a demonstration and, and showed the miraculous things that could happen once Rolfs, you know. Um, and so I thought, oh, my God, that was that thing that I saw on the Tom Snyder show. Like, I've got to. Get Rolf. And so I called this Rolfer <laughs> and it was expensive. And I was like, well, I don't really have any money, you know. So he gave me a deal and I did like 12 sessions of Rolfing. I think it, it, actually I did even more than that. And it really was powerful for me. It really opened my body up in a way that really needed to happen. And I was able to release a lot of trauma and that was kind of stuck in my body and it was it was very helpful um and i we i became friends with the rolfer and uh 
I kind of dove into the human potential movement in New York, Ralph Bain, Feldenkrais, all kinds of neo-Wikian therapies. There was even a primal scream work- workshop listed in the Village Voice, which I went to once. It's kind of interesting. I, I studied these light fire kundalini type practices with the chakras and did all the trainings, the S training, the lecture training. You know, I was, I was kind of addicted to uh, this kind of human potential stuff. So um, I decided to get trained as a massage therapist, and I was able to incorporate a lot of what I was working or experiencing in these trainings into my work with people. And I had quite a little practice going on. And um, then the, the hammer dropped AIDS. And uh, the world kind of really shifted for me and for the gay community in New York and here in Chicago and San Francisco and L.A. Um, but it was uh, it was a very scary time. And um, people started getting sick and people started dying. And, um, I did find that um, there was a, surfa- a service opportunity that I could kind of create for myself, and I started going around to the AIDS wards in the hospitals all over New York and massaging the hands and the feet of these poor young men that were dying. And um, it felt, I mean, I hope it felt good for them. It felt good for me because I felt like I was doing something. Um, and at some point, I, okay, so the Rolfer's sister was the cook at IMS, <laughs> Uh, inside meditation uh, society and um, she gave me a book we became sort of friends and she gave me a book on Vipassana meditation and so I started I read this book of course being who I was you know jumped into it started watching my breath and out watching my thoughts thinking 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 um, so that was my introduction to like more classical meditation. Um, cut to San Francisco. Um, oh, what I wanted to say in the beginning, too, is, you know, I have 40 years to talk about, so there's no way I can really talk about everything. <laughs> so I'm jumping around. So I cut to San Francisco. So through a chance encounter in um, Las Vegas, I met this guy who I like to call my first husband. And ended up moving to San Francisco. And uh, we lived together in the hate. And, you know, AIDS was getting worse. And um, Ram Das and Stephen Levine uh, were really helpful to the community. And they would give um, seminars and workshops for, you know, the people that were experiencing AIDS and everybody else who was involved. And so it was really... Um, it was a very rich time because they were such smart, you know, brilliant teachers. And, and it was the first time I really started to explore, you know, identity, you know, like who am I, you know, and Stephen had written this book called who dies, which is a great book. If you you haven't read it, you should pick it up. Um, Which is all about really who's dying, you know, who's dying. It was a really interesting question to ask because as these men, lost function you know like who was it that was running around in this leather pants and you know these shoes and you know because their identities were shifting so it was really 
I think it was helpful to to a lot of people, and it was it was uh, yeah, it was a very rich time. And, I, and the way the gay community, lesbians and gays, responded to AIDS was incredible. It was just incredible. It was so inspiring that um, to be part of that community at that time. And it's sad that well, it's great that we don't have AIDS, but it's sad that we've lost that sort of um, kind of special connection that we all seem to have with one another and really sought spiritual answers to these really tragic problems. Um, so, I, you know, also I, in San Francisco, I helped to found this nonprofit called Steps, and it was a, um, we held Kudler-style workshops for people, and um, there was this lady named Maggie Creighton who was this master Gestalt therapist, and um, she trained us in her work, and that was um, very powerful and very enriching as well. So um, about this time, Jack Cornfield moves to California and starts a sitting group in Moran at the Fairfax Church, and uh, I went up there, and Jack was giving a talk, and I didn't, I guess I kind of knew who he was, but not really. Um, and, but he's a great speaker and, and they were about to go on retreat. And I have no idea where I am on time. So tell me to shut up when, when, when I need to. Um, so they were about to go on retreat and Jack was talking about the retreat, you know, things that happen on retreat. And I thought, oh yeah, that sounds great. I think I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to go for this on this 10 day retreat in Joshua Tree. Yeah, which is in the desert in Southern California. And um, he suggested during the break that you were interested to talk to the senior students. And so I um, was talking to a senior student and he asked me a question and he said, I, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. And I was like, what? <laughs> suffer? You know, it's like, oh, no, I think I'm going to be enlightened. <laughs> I don't plan on suffering. That's what I'm thinking in my head. And, uh, you know, he could see by the look on my face that I was kind of confused and a little disturbed. And he just smiled and he said, well, there are two kinds of suffering. The kind you run away from and that follows you everywhere. And the kind that you face, which is the gateway of freedom. And I was like, oh, hmm. I guess this is not what I thought it was going to be. And I was really worried about not talking for 10 days. <laughs> but I, I got in my car and drove down there. I took the back roads through the desert. It was quite the pil pilgrimage. And um, experienced my first 10-day uh, retreat at a place called the Mental Physics Center, which is now called the Joshua Tree Retreat Center, I think. And the Mental Physics Center was founded by Edward Dingle. He was a mentalist in the 40s in LA and somehow got Frank Lloyd Wright to design this retreat center in this beautiful desert. And it's incredible. It's an incredible place. And um, so that's where I went for 10 days. And the sitting was tough, very tough. It was 45 minutes of sitting, 45 minutes of walking, 45 minutes of sitting, 45 minutes of walking from 6 a.m. until 9 p.m. with, you know, the breaks and, you know, food and stuff. But, um, and, uh, you know, over several days, I, I, I did become more grounded in my body and my breath. And I did become, I began to see more clearly 
all the habituated patterns, you know, of the conditioning that my mind had, you know, like rolling around. I began to see all the likes, you know, my preferences. I like this. I don't like that. All the judgments, all the desire. I began to see the inner commentary that was constant, you know, going on about everything. I began to see the projections that I had about, you know, people I didn't even know. You know, there's uh, something called the uh, Vipassana romance, which is uh, when you, you know, kind of fall in love with a total stranger. And it happens a lot to people in retreats, especially big retreats like that. And that happened to me, and I was, you know, stalking this guy, <laughs> you know, like casually, like, oh, I, yeah, I just happened to be walking here, too. <laughs> oh, I'm sitting next to you at dinner again. Um, so, like, I, my mind wanted to do anything to escape, you know, uh, anything. And so I had that for a few days and also got a little taste of the Vipassana Vendetta, which is, uh, you know, when someone you don't know, like the way they breathe or they eat or they walk or, you know all that stuff so really it's just uh looking at you know all these ways that the mind tries to distract you from just being there so um i did have some takeaways from that retreat i learned to recognize what was happening in my breath in my mind in my emotions in my body i learned to uh, uh, allow the experience to be there just as it is. You know, and these are things, these are things that you constantly have to relearn. You know, it's not like I learned them and I was good at it. I always do that, but these are the concepts that I took away. I learned to investigate my experience with interest and care. And I learned to nurture myself with self-compassion when I was bored, in pain, frustrated, all the things one goes through in a retreat. So, um, you know, Jack uh, had a lot of access to teachers. And, you know, of course, he worked with Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and James Barris and a whole bunch of other people. And so there were so many great, wonderful teachers that I had a chance to do retreats with um, then. It was... Um, it was really an incredible time. Um, so I, I did actually get introduced to Zen at Spirit Rock. Of course, it was more of a trailer then, but um, uh, like Norman Fisher would come over sometimes from the, uh, I don't know where he was then, but the Zen Center in San Francisco or uh, someplace. Uh, Korean teachers, Zen teachers were floating in and out. And many of the um, Vipassana teachers regularly quote quoted Suzuki Roshi, Dogen, Nagarjuna, just to name a few people, but um, the Boston teachers really include the teachings of Zen in their Dharma talks. Um, so I also happened to live down the street from the Zen Center, San Francisco Zen Center, and so I'd occasionally wander in there and sit. Um, but I was kind of, yeah, I was I didn't really get it at all then, but um, but I'd go and I would participate and then slip out on <laughs> the back door. So, um, you know, early 90s, difficult time. People are still dying. I was at a club one night and somebody gave me some crystal meth. And I literally didn't stop 
using crystal meth until I got arrested and put in jail, which is a long story. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to tell it all now. That's pretty much all I'm going to say about it. But um, the upshot is, is that it was a, it was a crucible experience. It was an experience of losing everything. Of, you know, my ego was completely shredded being in a jail. You know, it was an experience of being broken wide open. You know, it was um, my privilege, which I, you know, didn't even realize I had, was just decimated. I was, I was just humbled in a profound and, and an enduring way. I have, you know, learned. You know, I didn't realize this all the time, but over the years, as that experience has fermented, it's, it's really, I'm, I'm kind of grateful that it all happened because... It, it, I don't think anything, there's, there's just nothing that could, could have um, given me that kind of teaching. And I kind of needed it. Um, so I had the good sense to lean into my practice, um, which allowed me to be quite resilient. And um, uh, I recovered pretty quickly from that very horrible time. Um, Years later, um, I moved to Chicago. Around 2010, I found Ancient Dragon. And um, I came here on a New Year's. It was a New Year's um, event. And <clears throat> that was my first experience here. And then I started participating in many of the machines in the uh, day longs. And um, for, you know, I don't know how long it's been, 12 years, 10 years, something like that. Um, so, how are we doing with time? We're good. We're good? We're good. Okay. Well, I'm just going to have a little bit more. So, um, so I just wanted to offer this little bit of teaching um, about um, learning to not be afraid of your pain. Because I was very afraid of my pain. You know, like, when I would sit, you know, I would, you know, start to feel this pain, the same pain, the same place. And I would just, it would just wreck me. I would think, oh, no, there's that pain. And, you know, it's like I wanted it to go away. I didn't like it. I didn't want to go through this. Um, and it was, it was really tough. So I, I, uh, and I think everyone kind of goes through that in long retreats. Everyone hits the wall with some type of pain. Um, you know, discomfort is part of the package. So, uh, you know, and I would seek help from teachers. I'd be like, oh, yeah, like this pain. And I thought they would be able to give me some quick fix. And they were always like, well, just focus on it. You know, just really investigate it. And I would always be like, ah, I don't want to do that. But uh, the way out is really the way through with, with that situation. Um, so um, I learned to observe uh, how the pain would change, notice its impermanence, how it moved around. Um, lots of teachers talked about how once you intensely observe pain, it can unwind and um, energy in the body can be released. Uh, pain in the body can dissipate through close observation. Um, 
Well, I had heard this for several years, and I was on a retreat with Christopher Titmus, who's a very interesting teacher. He was kind of combining politics and meditation back then. Um, and uh, so I'm on this retreat, Northern Marin somewhere in some Catholic place, um, and I'm I'm kind of determined to like resolve this issue with my parents. And and so we everyone goes to bed and I decide to stay up. And I'm sitting in the the what we was we would call a zenda. And um it's kind of this gothic structure and the uh there's some altars around, candles. And I'm sitting there and I think I'm just not gonna move. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to observe this pain and I am not getting up until it, something happens. Um, and surprisingly, I was able to do it. And I sat there, and as my concentration kind of gathered steam, um, I was able to really distinguish this aspect of mind that was really shouting at me, you know, move, get up, don't do this, you know. And I was... Just feeling the pain, feeling the pain, feeling the pain. Uh, I'm not sure how long I was doing that, but it was quite a while. And all of a sudden, um, I felt like there was this kind of explosion in my body. And I felt this heat rush up my spine and into my head. And I thought, oh, my God, I've gone too far. I'm having a stroke. (laughs) I really thought that. I thought, oh, my God, I'm dying. Why did I do this? I'm going to die. And so, and I was slowly passing out and I lost consciousness and I I don't I probably wasn't out long but I woke up and I was on my back and I was staring at the ceiling I was drenched in sweat and and I I was like okay can I move (laughs) my hand yeah I could move my hand can I move this hand yeah my feet okay I sat up I'm like oh I guess I'm okay it's like well let's go have a snack (laughs) But what I noticed the next day, oh, well, well, let me get to this. So, like, when you tell teachers about special experiences, they're generally very unimpressed. <laughs> and that's for a good reason, because, you know, you can get, once you have experiences, and everyone will have their version of special experiences, but um, you can, they can be a real trap because you can spend a lot of time trying to make that happen again, you know, or think that that means something or um, that that's the point, and it's really not. Um, but that experience did allow me to, um, it did something to my concentration where I was really able to not react to my mind. I, I, was, I was much less reactive to the mind that was saying, scratch that itch, you know, move that hurts, get up you're uncomfortable, whatever, you know, I was able to just sit with my experience much more thoroughly after that. Um, And I'm not talking about the kind of pain that, you know, is physically, you know, like you have a, uh, something in your spine that's wrong or nerve pain or or something that's really serious. I'm talking about sitting with this type of pain that can build up a, in the body and that it's more about um, a resistance to zazen, a resistance to feeling impermanence, a resistance, a kind of holding on 
a clinging that manifests in the body. You know, it should be, if you're going to work with pain and really sit through it in a, in a dogged way, you know, make sure it's the kind of pain that when you get up after a minute, you, you know, you're fine. Um, so, you know, pain's inevitable, discomfort's part of the package, and I just didn't want this to be true. Okay, so, so in, in working with pain, it's helpful sometimes to, um, really focus in on that area, almost layer by layer, like an MRI, just really slicing it, just being very thorough with your awareness. Um, having a kind and compassionate attitude towards the pain is really helpful because I don't like this. I want it to go away. Isn't really helpful. <laughs> um, so like realizing that, yeah, I have a body. It hurts. You know, you know, may I, you know, like send some love to your pain, send some compassion to your pain, allow the pain to be there. Don't try to change it. Don't try to make it go away. Instead, simply accept the pain as it is. So this from Pema Chodron. Pain is a teacher. It teaches us about our bodies, about our minds, about our hearts. When we meditate with pain, we can learn to listen to its teachings with wisdom and compassion. And lastly, I have a quote from the teacher, Jack Cornfield. In the end, just three things matter. How well have I lived? How well have we loved? How well have we learned to let go? Thank you. Any comments, questions? Oh, Adam. I mean, if you want to call it that. <laughs> um, I really like the insight about moving into pain to unravel trauma. Mm-hmm. Like the metaphor of pain chasing you around if you try to avoid it yeah. is so on point. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's just it. Like, that was very good insight. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I had a fair amount of pain tonight, um, but I just expect it now and I don't get into the drama. I just feel it and breathe into it and generally it dissipates and I get distracted by something else. Yes, Mr. Mike. Thank you for your talk. I feel such gratitude for you. I feel grateful for you uh, always being yourself. Um, uh, saying what's on your mind and, and sharing your thought process and your experience and your rich life that you've had and your warmth and your laughter and no, um, I, I feel very wonderful.
presence. And I feel grateful, not only for myself, but for everyone here, um, uh, that you're part of our song and uh, personally, um, uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Hmm. Is there something? No, uh, I'll get to them, Ralph. <laughs> I didn't know if you were looking at me or. I, I know I was. I wanted to. I could have. Uh, oh, we'll get to them. <laughs> well, Nicholas, um, I feel moved by your by your openness and the wholehearted expression of your life, and I'm like, I'm so surprised we hadn't met each other before <laughs> that in some of these realms of Ralphing and Feldenkrais and. The possible <laughs> and uh, other things, and in particular, in that time, you know, I was becoming a young adult in that seventies time, and living with my friends um, first in Hyde Park, but then like in the middle of Newtown, if you knew what that was. Oh called, yeah, right? I all my gay friends. Oh yeah, and you know, just the. The wildness of that time, but also the community of that time too. I remember going to New York and you know act up and that whole kind of situation. It was such a a great scene, and also like this kind of talk about pain. You know, maybe your body was carrying so much in this life. So I really felt like yeah, you were wandering, but you know, I'm I'm impressed at your intuitive wisdom of knowing what you needed. Like throwing yourself into all of these places mm -hmm. so that you could have this practice that sustains you and you're so generous in sharing it with us. So mm -hmm. thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Hey, I really appreciate your talk and to echo what Getsu said, I think the most valuable thing of it was your willingness to be totally open about all of your experiences, the good, the bad, the embarrassing, et cetera. Um, because I know for me, when I'm around people that are that honest and open, it gives me permission to relax and open. And, you know, and I think that's, you know, in the sense of dependent arising, I think that there's a, a blank permission slip for, in a way, it relaxes uh, those that you know uh, into allowing themselves to love and own their own stories, you know. Mm -hmm. um, because I think if I, if I take away anything, you certainly went through a lot of different things, little, you know, seeking this thing, the other, trying this, that, and the other. Um, I've done my share of that myself. And uh, I think, you know, what arises over time is just a better knowing of yourself, not necessarily in any particular method, mm -hmm. but getting to know yourself more intimately. And, and I think that is um, a very, very uh, beneficial result of, you know, you didn't get the, the light bulb, the mountaintop, you know, and, and, and it didn't, uh, but you got to know who was Nicholas, you know, and mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the sense I got from this. And it was um, very moving. And, and I, I kept 
wishing you weren't looking at the clock because you did have a fascinating story and I'd love to hear more. So, so. there's a lot more. <laughs> well, you can give us part two. So. Yeah. Uh, I just want to express uh, my appreciation for you've had all experience with so many different aspects of even potential movements and different spiritual practices, but um, my impression is that you always went all in wholeheartedly. There you know, people who float around and very casually, you know, spiritual butterflies and mm-hmm. things. And I appreciate how you've really devoted yourself for everything from rolfing, which is quite a thing to be mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, the pretty difficult retreats at INS and Spirit Rock and so on. I appreciate that. I also I just appreciate, you know, the uh, the kindness you show helping the dying men you know, mm-hmm. and I'm very glad you didn't die yourself. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you very much. Tiger. Tiger. Nicholas, um, hi. Thank you so much. I was hoping to be there in person, and then the last minute I got ill. But I'm uh, thank you for your talk and your sincerity and your journey. And you know, I was at San Francisco Zen Center in the early '80s when the epidemic hit, and sitting with uh, lots of AIDS patients and beginning of hospice. And you know, anyway, you've been through so much and. Your sincerity and your kindness is so important. And thank you for being in this song. Uh, um, the way that I feel about the lineage of ancestors in Zen, it's almost identical to the way that I feel about my queer ancestors uh, as as a gay man. Uh, the emotional topic for me, and just even before I came to Zen, this this was so important for me. Uh, just a profound sense of gratitude for people that came before me that stewarded that community to care of each other that made my life possible, that I that I owe my life to. And uh, the sacrifices that, that were made, and I, I'm really, I'm talking about both Zen and, and queer people when they say all of this, the sacrifices that were, were made so that I can have the life that I have by people who weren't able to have the life that I have, right? To live the dream of, the, of what people before me wished for the people who come after them. Um, so you're you're part of that. You're a, you're not so distant part of that, um, but you're you're a part of it. And so I I know you were just being you, but still I'd like to uh, thank you for. Being a queer man in the mm-hmm. 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah. Thank you.
it strikes me that this Zendo was inhabited by a queer man who passed away, who lived here with me for almost 40 years. And he was 86. So his whole life of stories of what that was like, he was also a Chicago public school teacher. But I think, oh, his death really has meaning for us in some ways. It gave us the space, Mm -hmm. but also gave some kind of ground or energy here. Mm You know, that continuity was kind of outstanding when I was thinking about it. I was so grateful to have this place that was full of opera, paraphernalia, and mm. <clears throat> uh, interesting pornography. Which I never had a problem with. <laughs> I was just like, We do like our porn. She <laughs> was dying, he's like, Make sure my relatives don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> but um, the other thing I wanted to also just check in about was this pain. You know, you said something like, oh, well, make sure that that's not the kind of pain that you're okay when you get up. But also, if by the time you get up, you're damaged your nerves <laughs> too late. So I think mm-hmm. there is something about, or maybe you could say something about how do we recognize the kind of pain that we sit in stillness and presence with and the kind of pain that maybe we need to rest yeah. a little, both internal and external? Yeah. I mean, I may have depicted myself as some kind of warrior, but I am not. I'm pretty much a big baby when it comes to me. Um, so I think you really, you know, you just have to, check in, you know, mm-hmm. and see what's going on. What, what's your history with pain? Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be careful. You know, and if it's it's like, and pain can be exhausting to deal with it. Like, uh, you know, like leave, get up, take a nap, take some time and all. You know, it's like I'm not a big believer in, you know, like powering through necessarily things. I think it's important to go to your edge, you know, and everyone has a different edge. And then come back, and then maybe you go a little bit farther, you know. Um, it's a good question, and I mean, I, I know some people that have damaged their bodies, but they were more warrior types. They just had to, you know, sit in lotus or full lotus, which I've never been able to get in a full lotus, you know. So, um, yeah, just take it easy. Mm-hmm. If I may, there are a couple of warning things. Uh, pain to not sit through is if you feel a line of pain in your legs or anywhere else, or if you feel burning pain. Those are two things to avoid, whether it's in your body, your legs, or your neck, or wherever. So if those are not pain, those are not kinds of pain to power through. Uh, if it's just if your leg if your leg goes to sleep that's no big deal it's not a problem but but anyway uh thank you for for helping uh helping with this Nicholas mm-hmm. one more follow up if I may um, I just remembered one moment in your talk that really almost choked me to tears uh it was when you mentioned wanting to help and using your your rolfing or or 
massage experience to just massage the hands of those in these wards or wherever they were. And you kind of made it a little offhandedly in your tone about, well, I don't know if it helped help them, but it certainly helped me. But for me, I was instantly there. I mean, I, I remember, I mean, not being gay, but reading about this cataclysmic thing that was happening among this community, community of human beings who just, you know, uh, and all of a sudden there's something that's just decimating them. And I remember seeing pictures and I empathize 100% scared. You know, maybe all your friends have abandoned you because you're, you've got this thing that no one understands. And so you're lying in a bed somewhere and here comes this angel just holds your hand and just makes human contact. Uh, I, I can't even express in words what that must have meant. And I'm just hypothesizing to every single person that you did that for. So on behalf of them, thank you. Um, you have a trait that I really enjoy to see in people. That is, it seems to me the recurring theme is that you face discomfort. So the one that is like the, when, when one of your teachers say, I hope you don't mind suffering or forget to mention that the gut's instinct is that you walk through that discomfort and seems to be both the pain and facing situations that are challenging for you, but you down the cup and it makes it super interesting. And, and that's why I feel like the talk felt like, uh, basically chatting with a friend in a car, mm -hmm. which, which, uh, you know, I just, it, it's two things that I really appreciate. And, and I connected to the pureness and, and the, you know, yesterday we had the, the Sangha meeting. And of course there is a strong need to reach out to every way that we are in the world through colors of the skin and, and everything truly like so, social strata that we are in. But a month ago or so, I think we were in the Zendo and um, you were here. And I don't like to keep scores, but it kind of impressed me that it was more people that identify as queer than not. And I was such a weird feeling. <laughs> I like, I came out of one student out of a thousand when, you know, in the 70s wasn't a thing, but also 20 minutes from the Vatican year 2000 was also not a thing in a public school. And I, I was standing here and I was just like, I don't know, I don't like to keep scores, but what an interesting twist. <laughs> Somebody told me when I was 14, and again, you and, and many others, and you know, and this comes from the support of, of everybody, not just other queer people, and, and it's actually even more important that we do it together. And so being in the room and with this thing to be able to see, what an awkward, beautiful, unintelligible feeling for me at the time. And and so thanks to everyone in the Sangha, including especially you for sharing and following the fear and eventually bringing us here all together by following that discomfort and fear. Mm -hmm. And thank you for mentioning the one thing that I miss about a car, just having a primal scream in the highway where nobody can hear you. True, <laughs> <laughs> one thing that I miss. Eventually I found out I had a name, they called the primal scream, but to me it was just like when I'm alone in the car and I can just ruin my vocal cords.
Use your diaphragm. I know. That's how I learned. You need to learn how to scream. You can't just yeah. scream. You'll hurt yourself. Right. You may feel... <laughs> Thank you so much, Nico. You know, it was... Uh, when I was practicing early on at Spirit Rock, I don't think there were any other gay people around. There probably were, but mostly it was an older crowd, like way older than I was. And... Um, it was sort of alienating, frankly. Um, I didn't have many friends, spiritual friends. And and, um, and I have to say, Ancient Dragon, when I first started coming here, I don't know if there were any other gay people around, but there sure are now. <laughs> you know, which I hope it's not alienating to the others. But, um, but yeah, it's so great that... Uh, we have our little community here in force. It's just lovely. So that's a real shift in this sangha. And it's just shifted a lot in Spirit Rock and other sangas as well, too. Sorry, I, at some point I just went like the queer Dharma group is the main group at some point. <laughs> you, know, like, you don't need it if it is. <laughs> we do, but you know, uh, I had a friend of mine made an interesting comment today. I was telling him a little bit about my talk for those of us who have. Who have experimented with a lot of things, he said, well, you know, that's what Buddha did, too. You know, Buddha did all this stuff. Well, so... Last time he's having a hard time hearing, I believe. I said, um, I was talking to a friend of mine, and um, I told him a little bit about my talk, and uh, he said, well, you know, like, th this is kind of an archetypal journey. The Buddha did many, many things before he sat under the Bodhi tree, you know, and so there's lots of people at that time in, in history that we're doing all kinds of things. And, you know, I hope they found their true home. I mean, I think I've, I've transitioned to this being my true home. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. It's a well-worn path, <laughs> dabbling, searching. And, Nicholas, one of the things I most appreciate about this Sangha and everybody here is that the journeying and a lot of people at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate have gone through various, I mean, I tried rolfing once, uh, um, <laughs> through various uh, practices and paths. Uh, Douglas started with Trumpa's group mm -hmm. and has been through, you know, a couple of other Zen teachers. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a richness to all of us together gay or straight or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, just from having gone through all of this together. And, um, you know, and, and Soto Zen, I, or our Soto Zen accommodates that pretty well, I think. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thought I could just press the space bar and it would work, but it didn't. Um, I I was also really moved by your talk, Nicholas, and um, I think the one 
piece I wanted to comment on was the sitting with the pain. Um, and, and actually the prime, the primal scream. I, I many, many, many years ago had some kind of psychosomatic illness that resulted in not being able to really speak because I had so much throat pain oh. and I tried all kinds of things. And I, I eventually had this idea that maybe it would get better if I just screamed. And I think I went, I, I think I did go out to the lakefront and, and, and that helped. I mean, I, I, it's a long, long story. I had to learn a lot of different things um, about myself that, that ultimately helped, but, uh, but yeah, that's there, there's something to the screaming um, as a means of dealing with pain, but but sitting with pain, I could really relate to what you were saying. Um, I, for many years, had horrible back pain that would only, you know, occur during like multiple periods of sitting. And I may still have it. I just, I haven't, I, I don't know. Um, I haven't, I haven't done an all day sitting in a while. Um, but I did have the experience of trying everything, everything to deal with that pain. and. The one thing that really worked ultimately was just giving up and just just sitting with it. And and I found that if I could just just stay 100 percent with it um, moment after moment after moment, it actually did ease up and and was really like a, a Dharma gate. But mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's like. When you finally exhaust all the things that you try to deal with the pain. You're just left with the pain, but then the pain kind of, you know, mm -hmm. becomes something else. Yeah, I think it's intelligent. I'd like you to maybe speak to this, too, that it's a, a way of um, practicing non-duality, right? Because we have this pain. We don't want it. We embrace it. We love it. We investigate it. It's like, by definition, that's non-duality. Yes or no? Can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Yes. And can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. So uh, you spoke to this as well. Uh, there's the physical pain, but that's a reflection of the pain in our hearts. Yes. And part of maybe what's most difficult about Zazen is not the physical pain, but just, you know, you spoke about this to just recognizing, um, you know, all the thoughts going around and all the, the feelings. And I was also moved by your uh, saying that you benefited so much from being in jail. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, how long were you in, if, if you don't mind my asking? Six months, because I, I, when I first went in there, Oh, I don't know. I just didn't stop doing drugs. And, and then they just, you know, they were like, you can't stop doing drugs. <laughs> you know, I, well, partly it was my own, you know, it was a process. I made it sound very like short and concise, but it kind of went on for a while. And it was a process of, you know, I thinking that I was above the rules, like, how dare you even arrest me? Like, who, do you know who I am? Like, I just had never been in any trouble my entire life. When, when, uh, it was just unfathomable to me that I could be arrested and put in jail. And so uh, I wasn't terribly cooperative, for, you know, in terms of, you know, doing what they wanted me to do. And so that, con that and that's why I spent six months in jail. 
because I'm sort of a dick about it. <laughs> um, but that was also, that was a huge part of the lesson, though. It's like, it's like really getting that you are not above the rules. It's like a, you know, it's a fantastic lesson to get. And I really hung on to that one. And, um, it's like, you know, like Icarus, you know, touching the sun, you know, it's like, it's, it's really an archetypal teaching, you know, to get that so profoundly, um, and to sort of act that out with the state of California. You know, it was bizarre because uh, it wasn't like it was so weird to like read my legal documents. It would be like, let's join our state of California. It was Kafka esque in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, there I was, and 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 I, I remember saying to myself, like, yeah, wherever you go, there you are, Nicholas. You're in jail. Like, this is your life. You have a life in jail as well. Like you have to, so I had to really have to discover that this was my life too. Like it wasn't separate from, you know, because at first it seemed like, well, this isn't my life. I can't be experiencing this, you know, and yet there I was. And so that was very powerful to realize that this too, you know, let's, you know, Zen teaching this too. Um, and to, to do that about that experience was profound and and finding a sense of you know and it was very scary and dangerous and horrible and i had a lot of bad things happening i didn't didn't get raped or anything like that but people picked on me a lot and it was awful thank you for surviving (laughs) (laughs) thank you for being here now thank you i think we've gone a little bit over time but um it was worth it to hear your story and, and you, you will, you will speak again. Okay. <laughs>